Well, let's turn, if you'd like to, in your Bibles in front of you. Page 6, it's Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing the Genesis story. And it's Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 20, and then the first two verses of chapter 4. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Andy. You know, uh, a little later on at uh, our 11 o'clock service, we've got uh, a couple of things happening. First of all, the youth are going to be bringing a report back from Letton Hall and... uh, doing a little bit for us uh, of some of the things that they were doing up there for those four days and that's exciting. And then we've also got a dedication. Uh, Coral and Graham Holmes Gifford are bringing their little daughter Georgina, dedicating themselves and asking God's blessing on their daughter. And uh, that sort of raises um, something, uh, that is there'll be a lot of visitors in here and we just pray that uh, at this time as we move towards Easter that they will just hear something of the gospel, something of God's love for them, something of the grace and mercy of the Lord, Uh, particularly if they've just come because it's a dedication or just come because their children were involved at Letton Hall and that's their only reason for being here. That's a good reason for being here, but it's good to just pray that they, um, they will hear something of the gospel. And of course, great prayer that Sandy prayed a minute or two ago. You know, it is Lent and it's really also about allowing that great truth of God into our hearts afresh as we move towards Easter, move toward really thinking about the cross and thinking about the resurrection. So thinking of those folk who will be visiting us later on and thinking of ourselves as we move towards Easter, let's just spend a moment and just uh, say, Lord, open my heart, open my eyes. Father, thank you that in your graciousness and in your mercy you do speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And yet in a sense, Lord, even that process is a partnership. We have to be willing to have open ears, open hearts to what you would say. Particularly if we will take that truth into our hearts and if we will go willing to respond to it. And so we ask you now, help us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to have open hearts, open ears to all that you would say. And open the ears and the eyes of those who will visit us later on, that they might... Be receptive 
to all that you would want to say to them. And as you attempt to draw them to yourself in love and in mercy, make them willing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the last uh, 150 years, uh, a very, very long-held belief, world belief, certainly a national belief, has really begun to break up. Uh, And that belief is the old romantic notion that we're inherently good and therefore talking about sin and Satan and evil is uh, primitive, it's pejorative and it's very, very negative. And that idea has begun to break up. You see, the problem over the last century is that we have discovered that oppression and evil have not gone away uh, and uh, they haven't gone any better despite our best efforts to improve social care, to improve education and so on and so forth. Actually, evil and oppression over the last century have have erupted with enormous ferocity and we've seen the complete spectrum Uh, of evil and oppression playing themselves out around the world. And as I say, all of that has happened despite our very best efforts to improve social conditions, political arrangements, and so on and so forth. And of course, because we've done everything we can to sort that problem, because we are inherently good, so we can sort it, you see, because we've done everything that we can to sort it, and because it's gone so horribly wrong, that has given a terrible, terrible uh, dilemma for the modern mind. Do you remember, I'm hazarding a guess, there'll be more at 11 o'clock they are going to remember this, there might be one or two of you. Do you remember, it was a book, but it was actually the film, I think, that came to most people's notice. Do you remember a film called The Silence of the Lambs? Oh, you t- excellent, excellent. Well, in The Silence of the Lambs, um, it's, a, it's a pretty stark, grim story, but you've got Officer Starling, who's a, an FBI um, academy student, and she is sent, I mean, it's kind of a very big case for a student to be sent to, but she is sent to interview Hannibal Lecter. It's hard not to hear Anthony Hopkins speaking, isn't it, really, at this point. But she's sent to interview this terrifying serial killer. And at one point she's talking to Lecter and she sees what he's done, the crimes that he's committed, and she can see this, this man's attitude. And this is what she says. She said, what happened to you that caused you to become like this? What has happened to you that you have become like this? Did you notice something about that? She actually, Officer Starling, Agent Starling, is the quintessential modern or postmodern person. What has happened to you? You're doing bad things, therefore something must have happened to you. Uh, Something must have come from the outside. It couldn't possibly be something inside you. You see, that's the world view. It's a terribly mistaken belief, but it's also a very, very widely held belief. And Hannibal Lecter, interestingly, in the film, and you really do hear Anthony Hopkins saying this, um, he really slam dunks this world view very firmly. Because she says to him, What has happened to you? And he says, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. 
You've given up good and evil for behaviourism. Officer Starling, nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Officer Starling, look at me. Can you stand to say that I am evil? That's what he says to her. And of course that really graphically shows us what the world believes. That there are only three reasons why human beings do evil things. The first is because of psychology. Uh, It's a complex that we've got. You were probably raised badly. The second is sociology. Um, This is antisocial behaviour, probably stemming from some form or various forms of deprivation that you've undergone at some point in your life. Or, it's evolution. Uh, You're aggressive because a millennia of natural selection has just meant that you've evolved into an aggressive person. And so you see, all of those influences come from outside, which is why Starling's words to Lecter so typify what people have believed for so long, but which is now breaking up. Because we sought to rectify those things, the psychological influences, the sociological influences, and even deal with you know, evolutionary influences, and then realised that actually the world was getting worse and worse, and that all of our best efforts were having no good at all. And you see, all of those explanations for human evil actually trivialise the suffering of the lives in the lives that Lecter has destroyed. And of course, if you just apply those arguments to the suffering you see around the globe today, it will trivialise the suffering that has been undergone by those people that have been destroyed. You can just see Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, leering out from, uh, <clears throat> from behind his prison bars. He's not leering at Starling. He's not leering at us, the viewers of that film. Actually, what he's doing is he's leering at the modern world. He's looking at us and saying, you have no categories for me in your worldview, but I'm here. And he leers at us and we're left standing there looking back with no answer. But... You can't say that about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis has categories for Hannibal Lecter. The book of Genesis has categories for every person who perpetrates evil and oppression on planet Earth. The book of Genesis has no problem explaining the Hannibal Lecters of this world. So as a result, we're going back to the book. In Genesis 3, and you'll know something of this because we were looking at it last week, we have the account of the fall of humanity into evil and sin. And that very, very nicely accounts for what we see in our world today and, wonderfully, gives us enormous hope that there is something that can be done about it. So, let's have a look. We're going to carry on, as it were, from where we left off last week. And uh, we're going to have a look and see what it teaches us about the human condition and what hope there is for us despite the human condition. And we're going to look at it under three vivid images. The reaching, the covering and the sword. Okay, so the first thing I want to look at with you quickly is the reaching. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's actually a very sad 
A very sadly ironic statement that God makes here at this point. It's sadly ironic because if you remember back in verse 5 of this chapter, the serpent had come to Adam and Eve and had originally said to Adam and Eve, if you disobey God, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because they do now know about good and evil because that's what God has just said. Because they do, they must not be allowed to reach out and to take from the tree of life. If you disobey God, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And yet, there's also, we know, don't we, that there's something diabolically deceptive about what the serpent said to them. How do we deal with that tension? Well, it was diabolically deceptive uh, because, for this reason, there are two ways that you and I can get to know about good and evil. Just like there are two ways that you and I can get to know about the bubonic plague. One way is that you learn about the bubonic plague, and you learn how to treat it, and you learn how to avoid it. The other way to get to know all about it is to catch it, to become delirious, and then die. Uh, They're both forms of knowing about the bubonic plague. Which one would you rather have? You see, therefore God is now being sadly ironic because what he's actually saying in verse 22 is they have the knowledge they wanted, but not in the good way. Rather, they have the knowledge in the getting delirious and dying kind of way. So they have the knowledge, yes, says God, but they have it in the wrong way. So they have this knowledge in the wrong way, so now they must not be allowed to reach out and to take from the tree of life. What is the tree of life? Well, the tree of life, we're talking about eternal life. And in the Bible, it's very important to remember that eternal life doesn't just have to do with quantity. Do you know, one of the things I find myself saying so often these days is we're really good at keeping people alive, but we're not very good at giving quality of life. And sadly, we see far too many people who are still alive, but there's no quality of life. And half the time they actually say, I don't want to live like this anymore. And yet it kind of goes on and on and on. So that kind of durational thing isn't a a wonderful thing at all. And that's why this is not what the Bible's talking about, just quantity of life. Eternal life is talking as much about quality as it is about quantity. It's not so much talking about duration of life, it's talking about fullness of life. And you see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were effectively saying, we want to be our own gods. If you eat from the tree, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. Great, we'll be like God. We'll be our own gods. And human beings have been doing that ever since. And here's the thing, and this is the real tragedy of it, If you're going to be your own God, then you're going to lose the real God. And that is what's happened to them. They wanted to be God and they've lost the real God. But still within them is this desire to reach out. They still want to reach out. This is why God is saying they mustn't be allowed to reach out to the tree of life. They still want to reach out. Look, they know they've lost God. But what do they want? They still want the things that only God can give them. What this is telling us is incredibly vivid. It's saying that although we know we've lost God, 
and we have lost God. So what it's saying is, although we've lost God, although we've been pushed out of Eden, literally pushed away from God's presence, we can't forget what we were actually built for, what we were created for. We can't forget it. What I'm saying here is there's a memory trace in all of us that remains. And this memory trace is still there, and it keeps us reaching out, wanting the things that we've lost that only God can give us. We just can't forget it and we can't get over it. And because of that memory trace, because of that memory trace that's deep within all of us, our heart says, I know there's a tree. Because of that memory trace, our heart says, I know there's a garden. Because of this memory trace within us, our heart says, I know there's a God. This is true of all human beings. Our heart says, I know that's what I'm meant to be, there with God. And our heart, because of that memory trace, our heart says, I know that I was actually made to last forever. It's still there, deep within us. We can't make sense of us, we don't understand it. But it keeps us reaching out for that which is actually unobtainable now. Because God has said you can't be allowed to come back. Yes, you have the knowledge you crave, but you have it in the bubonic plague kind of way, the the delirious dying kind of way. Now I can't let you reach out for it. We know there's a tree. We know there's a garden. We know somehow what we've lost. And so we go on reaching for it. And you see, here's the thing, unless we intellectually understand this, Actually, what it's going to do as fallen human beings is it's going to screw us up for our entire lives. And you see this all the time. Why are people constantly trying to replace what they know they've lost with something else? With something else that just doesn't work. Because there's just enough in us to remind us of what we've lost and so we're desperate to find something to fill that void. And you see, if we don't understand that, then all our life we're going to spend our lives looking for people or places or things to take the place of that which we've lost. And yet they won't work. You see, don't you see, Genesis helps us to understand why we're always reaching for the unobtainable. So that's the reaching And that, I think, does help us to make sense both of our world and both of what's going on inside us, the tensions and the struggles that we all undergo on a daily basis. But I want to move on to thinking with you now about the covering. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Well, we did look at this uh, quite in some detail last week. At the end of chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were first created, we're told in verse 25 that they were naked and they're unashamed. But after the rebellion against God, after the desire to be God, their own gods, uh, after the fall, sin comes into the world and suddenly... They feel very naked and very ashamed. They've always been naked and ashamed. They didn't just look down, as I said last week, and go, oh my gosh, I don't have any clothes on. How extraordinary. They'd never had any clothes. And they didn't feel ashamed. But now they do. Why? Because nakedness, as I said last week, really means to be known. And before Adam and Eve decided to be their own masters, they had no problem with radical vulnerability. 
Now suddenly being vulnerable, being seen by God particularly, being observed, being visible, being open, being uncovered, it's traumatic. Human beings, ever since Adam and Eve, can no longer bear to be under the gaze of God. And actually, nor do we ever want to be under the gaze of other people. We don't want other people to truly see us. We don't want other people to truly know us. They don't, we don't want them to know what we're like. Because if you really know me, you won't love me. You won't accept me. And deep down we need to be loved and need to be accepted. Because that's how we were with God. That's how he's created us to be. And it's terrifying nakedness then is this deep sense that there's something wrong with me that there's something inadequate that I'm really not what I ought to be and it's very very deep and it's very very terrible and that's the reason that we cannot bear to let anybody else truly see us and so what do we do? we spend our entire lives desperately trying to cover up do you remember I said Adam and Eve they covered up in three ways immediately after all this had happened They put fig leaves on so they were covered from one another. They went and hid behind trees so God couldn't see them. And then they started telling all these lies because they didn't really want to face the truth about themselves and what they'd done. So they were covering up from one another, from God and from themselves. And that's what we spend our lives doing. And here's the thing, you know, and and I do find this so sad. And you've only to look around the life of the church, but certainly the life of the community, let alone the nation and the nations, to see this is true, that... Really, such a big part of this manifests itself in our going through life, carrying around so much fear inside of us. Think about it. You know, how often do you find yourself going through life with this terrible fear of failure? Or this terrible fear that you won't live up to somebody else's expectations. I don't know whether it's your parents when you were a kid or your teacher, your pastor, your friends, your neighbours, your boss at work. It's that fear, I'm not going to live up to their expectations. We fear not living up to our children's expectations. We have this terrible fear of, of anybody seeing us bleed. I can't let them truly see this weakness. We have fear of letting other people down. Fear that we won't be loved and accepted. Fear of losing our security. Fear of being truly known, because that will have dire consequences. Terrible fear, truthfully, of just living life on life's terms. I can't face life as it really is, so I've somehow got to cover up. Fear of dying. And why we fear dying? Because we fear that's the point at which we'll suddenly be truly known and everything will now be exposed. And you know, this fear that so many people carry around is actually what lies behind so many other problems. Do you know, many, many people's lives are destroyed by addictions. And they fall into the addiction, they fall into the habit in the first place because at the beginning it works. It's the only thing that begins to quell the fear they feel inside. They can't do life on life's terms and so they fall into the addictive behaviour, the addictive habit because that stops, for a time, the fear. I, (laughs) I can't avoid this, I have a, a... 
penchant, a tendency to be impatient. But I, you know, what I really hate about myself more than anything else is my tendency to be impatient with other people. And I can trace it and see it so obviously every time, and it happens far too often, I admit it, every time I'm impatient with other people, it's because the fear, normally of failure, this is going to go wrong, I'm going to fail, I'm not going to do it, I won't live up to their expectations. The fear starts to build and it just manifests itself in that snappy impatience and yet it's a fear and it's a bad thing and I don't like it, I want it to go away but that's for me and I think loads of us this fear just builds whatever it's about and, and it expresses itself in another way. You know, we, we carry this fear around inside of us and then we spend our lives going to extreme lengths to cover it up or to just simply find some way, it's normally not healthy, to find some way of just easing that gnawing pain that's going on inside us. So... We've got uh, the reaching, we're reaching out for something that we know instinctively in us should be there, but it's now gone, it's unobtainable. Because God says you can't touch the tree anymore. And yet we go on reaching for what only God can give, while at the same time wanting to be our own gods. And all of that has left us naked and ashamed and fear-filled and vulnerable. So then we spend our lives trying to cover up while still reaching out for the unobtainable. All sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But let me <clears throat> finish with the third thing, because this is great. The sword. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Right, here we've got two things. One of them's quite obvious and one of them's less obvious. First of all, this is the obvious one, sin always isolates us. Sin always excludes us. You know, that's just common sense. Think about it for a moment. Think about living in a family. Uh, think about living in a marriage. Think about living in any community. And then think, as you're doing that, think about yourself if you always put yourself first. Because that essentially is what sin is. That's, that's the essence of sin, is rampant self-centeredness. So think about living in a marriage or in a family, in a community, and being rampantly self-centered. What's going to happen? I'll tell you, it won't be long before you find yourself alone. You know, in most cases, you don't get cast out of the garden. The garden just gets up, walks out, and leaves you. Sin isolates, sin excludes. What keeps Adam and Eve out of the garden? What keeps Adam and Eve away from the joy of being in relationship with God? Something that they were created for. Sin. That's the obvious thing. Here's the part of that that's perhaps slightly less obvious. What keeps Adam and Eve away from the joy of being with God, away from the garden that is paradise? Well, what keeps them away is not a wall, but a sword. It's not a door, it's a sword. So the way back to paradise, the way back to God, is not to scale a wall, but rather it's to go under a sword. You see, once we were evicted from paradise, we were doomed to live our lives away from God. And where there had been no death in Eden, now death was assured for every one of us. 
We must die because there's no way back to the tree of life. Or actually, the only way back to the tree of life is to go under the sword, which means to die. So whichever way you look at it, there's no way back without death. So what hope is there for any of us? Here's the hope. On a dark and stormy night, many centuries ago, there was somebody else who was cast out. Cast out as he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was somebody who was uncovered, stripped naked in the dark. They cast lots for his clothes. There was somebody who quite literally went under the nails, under the spear, under the thorns, under the knife. Somebody who shed his blood. As the book of Isaiah says, he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, we are told that he went under the sword. But we're also told that the temple curtain was torn asunder. The temple curtain was torn in two. Now, I haven't got time to go into this, but you know, this is vivid, vivid imagery. As sin and rebellion came into the world, God says, I'm guarding this with a sword, I'm guarding this with a cherubim. There is no way back now into my presence. And do you remember, all through the worship ritual in the Old Testament, we have the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. And once, and only once a year, the high priest was allowed to go in there to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. There was no way back behind that curtain as Jesus died on the cross that temple curtain was torn in two Jesus had suddenly made a way back to the holy of holies he made a way back for us into the presence of God how did that happen because Jesus went under the sword for us that we might know the joy again of being restored in relationship to our God. Because the sword fell on him, our debt was paid. And it's interesting, do you remember back in verse 21, we just looked at this, God covers them with skins. What are skins? Well, skins are the result of an animal being sacrificed. In other words, God covered them with the result of a sacrifice. Do you see the vividness of this imagery? God covered them with the result of a sacrifice. A sacrifice that had to be made. A sacrifice that had to go under the sword if we were to make our way back into the garden. Once we had been evicted from Eden, once we'd been cut off from God, the only way back was for this sacrifice to have been made. The sacrifice had to be made to atone for, to pay for our debt. The bill was ours. We wanted to be our own gods. But Jesus paid it in full when he went under the sword, when he died on the cross. You see, God can make everything right through Jesus. How can you know that joy and freedom today? How can that terrible fear, how can that terrible sense of inadequacy, how can that terrible desire never to be fully known, how can that be removed from us? Like this. If we go on trying to cover up before God, he will uncover us. And that's an awful thing. But if we will uncover ourselves before Almighty God, he will cover us with his righteousness. Literally, he will make us right with himself. And that is true, unbounded joy.
You know, I said it last week and it's true. It is the most frightening thing a human being can do to stand before God with all our nakedness and all our shame and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's the most frightening thing you can do. But therein lies true freedom and true joy. You know, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish Lutheran theologian, philosopher, he wrote this. Let me read it to you. O Jesus Christ, hiding place for sinners, hast thou learned, O reader, how to hide in him when weary unto despair? It's not some inspiring thought he gives thee. It's not some doctrine he communicates to thee. No, he gives thee himself as a shelter. As the night spreads concealment over everything, so did he give up his life and become a covering for a sinful world. He gave himself as a covering for thee and for me. And then he signed it, Love, Soren Kierkegaard. Do you understand that that's what Jesus did for you? He covers perfectly everything about us that causes us fear and pain and anguish. And he wants to do that for you again today. Do you understand that? Don't stop searching until you do. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have, I pray, opened our eyes afresh to why we go on reaching all our lives for that which is just not obtainable. But I thank you that you also allay the hopelessness of that by showing us that you will gladly Cover us with the sacrifice of Jesus. And in so doing, you will make us right with yourself. And that suddenly all the fear and all the pain and all the desire to cover up can be removed. And I thank you that you have shown us again that that can only happen because Jesus went under the sword for us. Help us to know that and to go on searching as you touch our hearts, as you touch our minds. Help us, Lord. We need that help and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.